0: Yeah, we've been having a good time. It's an honor, it's a pleasure to be here with y'all. You guys really are a family. We really are an army. Uh, Last night we had a message that addressed uh, more of what community is. Common purpose, common understanding, constant unselfishness, constant forgiveness. When we have this, we are very much a family. Today's two messages regard us being more of an army. Is that all right? And then Sunday, we'll, we'll, try, we'll do this message where I'm just going to invite you in to look at some memories of my past that help me remember why do I do what I do and who do I do it for. And then I'm going to challenge you to find your own memories that you can manifest into this physical world, things, places you can take a picture of, things that you can tear out of a book, something that, helped you, something that helps you remember that you know that you know that you know you heard from Jesus. Right on? But for today, let's talk about being an army. Would you turn to Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 17? Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 17. The greatest stories understand that drama does not have to be a reinvented wheel. One of the earliest epics of all time was about a man leading an army of men with dwarves as tall as me, some elves as tall as Paul, and a few hobbits, against wicked orcs that are always dressed for Halloween, and an eye obsessed with an object that contains limitless power. And during this saga, the hero is mentored by a father figure with supernatural abilities, and in the midst of spending his heart in battle, he gives his heart to a woman. Meanwhile, the community of Rivendell has no idea that a war for the soul of the world is at stake. Epics reemerged in the early 90s with technological advances, but the narrative was still very similar. A man who looks like he never ages was leading an army of people against vehement machines obsessed with an object that contained limitless power. During this saga, the hero is mentored by a father figure with seemingly supernatural abilities. In the midst of spinning his heart in battle, he gives his heart to a woman. Meanwhile, the community of the Matrix has no idea a war for the soul of the world is at stake, part four this winter. Also, the hero dies and rises again. Epics regained popularity in the early 21st century with a story of a boy leading an army of boys and girls and good wizards from a Hogwarts school that looks like its tuition costs $1 million a year. (laughs) And they fight against evil wizards led by the most evil wizard obsessed with an object that contained limitless power. And during this saga, the hero is mentored by a father figure with supernatural abilities. And in the midst of spending his heart in battle, he gives his heart to a girl. Meanwhile, the community of non-magic folk muggles has no idea that a war for the soul of the world is at stake. Oh, and the hero dies and he rises again. Every great story is the same. The only thing that has changed is the evolution from mid-century wizards to computer wizards to modern-day wizards. And an object of limitless power evolving from a ring to a computer to now a wand. All the while, no one knows that a war for the soul of the world is at stake except for a brave few. But this narrative did not start with a few inklings from England a few centuries ago. The Bible is the historical narrative of the Son of Man leading an army of godly people against wicked forces led by a wicked angel obsessed with the power of an eternal throne that he can never have. During this saga, the Son of Man is discipled by the Heavenly Father with supernatural abilities, and in the midst of spending his heart in battle, he gives his heart to his bride, the church. Meanwhile, the community of finite humans with infinite souls has no idea that a war for the soul of the world is at stake, except... For a brave few. Oh, and the hero dies and he rises again. As Tim Keller has said, the story of Jesus is not another fairy tale. This is the reality to which all the fairy tales point. But we Christians can be guilty for we find it easier to give our affection and our money and our fandom to believe and make believe. But we can take issue with what the Bible says to believe. For example, we believe in the goodness of Jesus, yet we do not believe the goodness of this Jesus would allow the badness of a devil to roam, so we do not believe in a devil. Further proving this old adage, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he does not exist. But a Christian cannot be Christian without believing the unbelievable, such as a real God and a real devil battling for souls in real space and time. Which leads us to our text... Acts chapter 19, verse 11 through 17, which says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. And the evil spirit answered, rebuttaled, if you will, and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. This is the real gritty Bible. Ephesus had seen evil people do supernatural things. They had never seen a man of God do supernatural things. But here arrives the Apostle Paul. His words bring revelation to minds. His handkerchiefs bring healing to bodies. But when this Apostle Paul worked supernatural miracles, it did not result in evil spirits going into people, but coming out of people. Now in any business... There are copycats who look for the right methods without taking time to develop the right convictions. Ephesus was no different. As exorcists began to adopt the apostles method for casting out evil, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. But for these seven sons of Skeva trying to remove an evil spirit from a person, the demon rebuttals. Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. Who are you? Now, this means hell has the most wanted list, as Leonard Ravenhill has said, but that's another sermon. The demon beat up these men who use the name of Jesus without knowing Jesus. They did not advance hell. They were being advanced against by, they did not advance heaven. They were being advanced against by hell because their relationship to Jesus was someone else's relationship to Jesus. So with heaven battling against hell for the soul of the world, we must ask ourselves, is our relationship to Jesus someone else's relationship to Jesus? To discern this answer, we're going to investigate three aspects affecting our soul. Number one, is someone else's devotional life being a substitute for my own devotional life? Number two, do we substitute real friendships for temporary acquaintances? And number three, is someone else's responsibility being substituted for our own responsibility? Would you pray with me this morning as we continue? Jesus, we love you. Help us to be real, to have a real sincere spirit, to have a real self-initiated motivation and action, to spend extravagant time with God, to spend extravagant time with people, and to do what you say, in Jesus' name, amen. When I went to university, I went as a kinesiology major, which is a fancy term for athletic training, and I did this to avoid the writing of personal essays, as well as to avoid my nemesis of biology class. I hate biology class. I still do. My foresight failed me because you cannot learn to train the body without biology class. But my fail-safe was finding a professor who appointed the learning of truth in group work as opposed to individual assignment. Our professor, however, was no fool. And when it became time for the group to present the truth that they have learned, the illegitimacy of our group work began to surface. The professor would call on me, Alex, can you tell me what the truth you learn means? Now I'd say, well, no, professor, that wasn't my assignment. I was working on something else, but ask Jacob. Jacob knows the answer. Jacob, can you tell me what the truth you learn means? Well, no, professor, that wasn't my responsibility in the group. That was Isaac's. Ask Isaac. Isaac, then, can you tell me what the truth you learn means? Actually, I can't do that, professor. Here's the thing. That wasn't my part. I did other stuff. That was Abraham's. Ask Abraham. Our professor quickly realized an individual's knowledge of truth was three degrees removed from actually knowing truth. So she passed the person that knew the answers, failed the people that did not, while moving every test thereafter from collective effort to individual, personal essay. Believing full well that anything other than a first degree knowledge of truth is really no knowledge at all. And if we study the history of Israel's spiritual life, we discover this is how their devotion to God failed resulting in the bondage of Egypt. God was Abraham's God. But to the next generation, he was the God of Abraham and Isaac. But to the next generation, he was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is radically different than saying God is my God and eerily similar to saying the Jesus whom Paul preaches. The end result was a few Moseses who would climb mountains of fire to be with God and too many Israelites who would create idols with their own hands Because someone else's devotion to God was a substitute for their own devotion to God. This is the recipe for failure. We cannot let someone else's devotional life be a substitute for our own devotion. Jesus has commissioned Go out and make disciples. Jesus has promised, abide in me, I'll abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus has connected. If we do not spend extravagant time having real devotion to Jesus, we will not make disciples like he has commissioned. In other words, the pastor's devotional life, regurgitated to me in a 30-minute monologue from a Sunday morning pulpit, does not replace my own devotional life with Jesus. If I only read the Bible when the text goes on a screen, if I only reason with God when the preacher asks a question, if I only worship when the worship band starts playing and cease worship because the worship band stops playing, if I only take my thoughts captive to Jesus at these altars, only to live Jesus, only to leave Jesus at the same altar, then my devotional life is someone else's devotional life. I am not advancing heaven, I'm being advanced against by hell. No, I may not be committing sin, but yes, I am omitting daily devotion with Jesus, which impedes revelation, that leads to repentance, that leads to responsibility, that leads to others having revelation of Jesus, that leads to others repenting for Jesus, that leads to others becoming responsible for Jesus. The most terrifying thing for demons is for Christians to behave like there is a God who will draw near if you do. So the application is quite simple. Abide in Jesus. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Let's ask until we receive. Let's seek until we find. Let's knock until the door is open. Let's write God's word on the tablet of our heart. Let's read God's word with our greatest commodity of time. Someone else's devotional life cannot be a substitute for our own devotion. I must, you must, we must spend extravagant time with Jesus. Likewise, we must discern: Do we substitute real friendships for temporary acquaintances? My oldest friendship began in elementary school. I met this friend at a sleepover, which is the boy version of a slumber party. <laughs> and there, would, there we would bond over our love for the World Wrestling Federation while discussing who had a crush on who at school because this was 1992. And then the friendship continued in the middle school, and we shared a few classes together and would bond over our love for the rapper Eminem while discussing who had the most clever AOL instant messenger screen name because this was 1998. And this friendship made it to high school where we shared homeroom together, and we would bond over our love for Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man. Wow. How about that? That's the first time I've ever said that line and had that reaction from the (laughs) the crowd. So I guess Tom Holland's not really doing it, you know. (laughs) We would talk about Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man while discussing what song that we would download later from Napster, because this was 2004. And this friendship made it to university where we shored a dorm together, and we would bond over being the only 18-year-olds not to smoke, although we could, and trying to figure out how to use this new texting service on the Motorola Razor phone that everyone had, because this was 2006. Now, in college, I met Jesus, and because when you love Jesus, you introduce people to him, I invited this old friend to small group, and he came. And I would talk about Jesus in small group, and I would share my thoughts about who Jesus is with him outside of small group. And we would hang out with the rest of the small group. We all played together. We all laughed together. We all cried together while this friend observed. He would buy some of the Christian books that we talked about. He would listen to some of the powerful Christian sermons we would listen to. He would even have good thoughts to say in these engaging Christian discussions. He was around Christians. Christians were around him. But then one spring break, he went to Mexico and he never came back. At this time we no longer live together. I went to his apartment for our habitual hangout. His roommates tell me he left. His bed is there. His furniture is not moved. A few shirts are missing from his closet among many more that stayed. I call him up. He won't answer. I text him. He won't respond. But he is a friend since elementary school. So I call his house line. His mom picks up. I say I am coming over. I drive to meet him. I ask why he left without saying goodbye. He says he did not want to go back to college. I asked, why wouldn't you tell your friends goodbye? He says he didn't think about it. I said, we've been friends since we were kids. He implies the friendship had served its purpose. I said, I did not know that friendship had a time limit. I asked, what about the small group? He says, that was not his thing. I said, God spoke to you. I heard his truth. From your voice, intangible, real sentences. He said, you're supposed to have something to say in small groups. So I did. I said, the Bible says God has a plan for your life. He said, I don't want to live with a plan. I said, I do not appreciate how after all this time you just left. He says, I'm sorry. I just not want to do college anymore. So I left his house and I would still call, but he would not answer. I would still text, but he would not respond. I would reach out on Facebook, but he would not reach back. Meanwhile, I cannot deny a lifetime of memories. And certainly there were seasons where community was real. But with such an abrupt end, I have wondered, he was my friend, but was I only his acquaintance? As we look at the broader community of Chi Alpha, This same story happens over and over and over. Same scenario, different characters. Do we let real friendships be substituted for temporary acquaintances? Do we consume community that someone else creates? Do we take honor without giving it? Do we encourage transparency while not being transparent ourselves? Do we hear confession of sins without admitting our own? Do we value personal feelings more than someone else's future? Do we amen truth without believing it? Do we look the part of Christian without having Christ be a part of us? James says to confess sins and pray for each other that we may be healed. The Apostle Paul said to carry each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus said, love one another. No greater love than laying down one's life for a friend. Real Christian friendship involves a mutual action and a mutual responsibility and a mutual understanding and purpose and forgiveness and unselfishness. But too often, Christian lifestyles are merely conformity lasting a season instead of conviction lasting a lifetime. The culprit is we have never honestly met with God. And therefore, we've never honestly met with each other. And therefore, we've never honestly met with ourselves. And when real friendship becomes substituted for temporary acquaintances, as soon as the opportunity to be a part of this community is gone, we are gone. And this is when godly books that collected dust are traded in to collect money. And this is when tongues reveal that they were trained but never tamed. This is when I will pray about it is proven to be rhetoric that was never reality. This is when the ends of the earth become out of sight and out of mind. This is when the gospel becomes forgotten This is when church involvement becomes fringe. This is when Jesus is revealed not to be someone's friend, savior, bridegroom, or king, but an accessory to use as desired. When this happens, we're not advancing heaven, we're being advanced against by hell. Now, there may be three reasons that we let real friendships be substituted for temporary acquaintances. For one, we believe if you never have to love, you never have to lose. But we forget the rebuttal of Mr. C.S. Lewis that the only place to be free from heartache is in a casket. But in that casket, undisturbed by real friendships, our hearts will grow old and cold as we turn into something less than what we meant to be. For two, we may not believe that we have anything to offer, so we do not offer ourselves to this community. But we forget the rebuttal of Genesis 1. You were made in the image of God. Which means every individual is this finite expression of the infinite God. You show this world something of the Lord that no one has ever seen before, nor will anyone see after. To lose you then is to lose a revelation of Jesus that only you can bring. That makes you very special. You need me. I need you. For three, we do not believe anyone who claims allegiance to heaven could love us if they didn't just know how dark our soul is. Surely, if people know how wicked we are, we won't be accepted. But we forget the rebuttal of Romans 5, 8. While we were still sinners, while we were still wicked, while we were still evil, Christ died for us. If there is nothing that we did to earn the love of God, then there is nothing that we can do to earn the love of God's people. So the application is very simple. Honestly, meet God. Honestly, meet each other. Honestly, meet yourself. We cannot substitute real friendships for temporary acquaintances. Likewise, someone else's responsibility cannot be a substitute for our own personal responsibility. I first joined Sam Houston State Chi Alpha. We were reaching around 250 students for Jesus. By the time I was a junior, we had been reaching about 500 students for Jesus for the past two years. And this was considered the largest Chi Alpha in the nation. But our pastors operated with this conviction that good enough is not good enough. And the belief that making disciples of all nations always means that we have to find a way to reach more. So they began to examine why this cryophe was stuck. And they reasoned it was easy for irresponsibility to be hidden in an audience of 500 students. A small group leader who found, fed, and fought for zero could go unnoticed amongst their more responsible peers who found, fed, and fought for many. So how do you resolve this dilemma? They decided to split the largest Chi Alpha in the nation into three separate groups operating independently on different nights with different staff and different student leaders. Their belief was that if it's easy to be irresponsible in a group of 500, it's much more noticeable to be irresponsible in a group of 100. And shame is just as much a motivator as glory now, when our first leadership retreat came to an end and this change was announced, the campus pastor responsible for our group, Jason Bell, took all of us leaders to the Kyle House, a room very much just like this, and he asked 20 small group leaders to sit down in the front row, very much like you guys are doing right now. The venue held about 200 seats. He then asked us to look behind us to the 180 empty seats around. And after a moment of silence that lasted an eternity, Jason speaks, and he says, If you do not go out and make disciples, every night will feel as empty as this one. It was then that the weight of responsibility fell on our soldiers, uh, shoulders. If we do nothing, then nothing is going to change. Now, Kyle at this point in time, had experienced glory years. Heroes had come and gone, but that was yesterday. And all that was left to change the world from Huntsville, Texas, was us. Someone else's responsibility cannot be a substitute for our own responsibility. When this happens, churches regress, movements die, souls are not one. We're not advancing heaven. We're being advanced against by hell. And this is exactly where biblical illiteracy can get the best of us. We trust it's better to wait for audible words and visual, vis- visual visions than to obey the Bible's actual verses. Jesus has already prophesied in Matthew 24, this gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth As a witness, and then the end will come. The heroes of the Bible have already demonstrated they were on mission because they assumed making disciples was a default green light. And if audible words and visual visions did have to be sent, it was to redirect their efforts, not to begin them. And this is where spirituality without sobriety can get the best of us. We tell people we have to pray about going on mission trips to destinations, but vacations to these same destinations require no divinity, just credit cards. All the while, Isaiah the prophet, without knowing budgets or time frames or locations, simply says to God, send me and I will go. This is where calling can get the best of us. The Bible word being used in the modern day had one meaning then that's not changed now. It simply means invited which is not the most mystical word in all the Bible. God is going to make disciples of all nations. You're invited to go with him. Jesus will be confessed by every tribe and every tongue. We are invited to introduce him. This is where family gets the best of us. I love my sweet little, my sweet little girl. She's 18 months old. She has this uh, crib, and on this crib is these sheets of the world with a plane flying from America well overseas, and as I rock her to sleep, singing songs about the glory of God and the goodness of God, I think in my soul, can I really send this little girl to the ends of the earth for Jesus? I've waited seven years battling and praying against infertility for this girl to be here. She's my daughter more than she's your daughter. I have to experience her. I have to enjoy her. I cannot let her go, God. And then Jesus whispers back, How is it that everyone is happy to have the gospel at the cost of my family, but nobody wants to share the gospel at the cost of their family? All the while, Jesus preaches in Matthew 10, if you love family more than me, you're unworthy of me. Meaning God is God and we are not. And God is God and family is not. This is where the devil gets the best of us. We insist we must feel like it before we're responsible for God, believing that we have to be true to ourselves. Forgetting all the while, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Self-denial, not self-fulfillment, is the secret to a Christian's happy life. So I hope this is clear. It is not the director's job to grow Chi Alpha. It's not the staff's job to grow Chi Alpha. It's not the small group leader's job to grow Chi Alpha. It is everyone's job to grow Chi Alpha. But to advance heaven, our relationship to Jesus cannot be someone else's relationship to Jesus. So as we throw off the sin that we love more than Jesus and the weight that we think about more than Jesus, we discover Jesus is simply asking us to do what he has done and is doing. Jesus did not let anyone be a substitute for his own devotion or community or responsibility. He grew in wisdom and stature, memorized the law and the prophets. Now he prays for us day and night at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has his own devotional life. Jesus went out and found the disciples. He took them fishing and hunting because apparently the Middle East is very much like Alaska. He was transparent and he was vulnerable. Jesus first called them friends. Jesus did not delegate the atonement. He grabbed a cross with joy. He drank the cup of suffering so we could drink the cup of life. He took the punishment of our sins so we can enjoy his freedom. He rose himself from the grave to help us to get to God. Jesus did not run away from responsibility. And when we have real devotion and real community and real responsibility, we do not have someone else's Jesus. We have him personally. This does not result in being beat up like seven sons of Sceva. It does result in demons knowing Jesus and knowing Paul and knowing you. Do you want to be dangerous for God? Do not let someone else's Jesus be a substitute for your own relationship with Jesus. Now, we're not going to have an altar call today um, because the application is quite simple. We're talking about real self-initiated, sincere devotion and real self-initiated, sincere community and real self-initiated, sincere responsibility. This isn't something that merely happens at an altar. This is something that happens out there all the time, every moment taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus for devotion, community, and responsibility's sake. Make sense? So I'm going to invite our interns back up to the stage to guide us in what's next, and I'm going to pray for you all as we move on. Jesus, we love you, and we ask, oh God, for sincerity. Ears have heard you, but Jesus, may our eyes see you. May we taste and see that the Lord is good. May we enjoy this community of unique, diverse individuals, loving one another with a love that makes heaven come down to earth. So help us, God, to have the unity that commands your blessing. And Lord Jesus, responsibility that is kind of terrifying is truly only terrifying to the degree that we don't know you. So help us to know you so we can be responsible for you. In Jesus' name we pray.